Well, well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we talk to Major General William Cooley, the commander of the Air Force Research Laboratory. He dissects satellite positioning, military research, and magic hippies. In three, two, one. General Cooley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, Kenneth's going to start off with some hard-hitting questions. So, uh, something I have to know. I heard you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Indeed. So, we're wondering, uh, to start off, do you think Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings, specifically the books, should have been in the movies? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. This this is... um, I am a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, and in fact, most holiday seasons, that has kind of become a tradition, along with watching It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, We tend to watch the Lord of the Rings, the extended version or whatever. It's just as a wonderful escape with family, so we we know it well, but that's the movie side. I I will tell you, I am so pleased that uh, Peter Jackson decided not to include the Tom Bombadil uh, (laughs) uh, storyline in the the film and in fact I would blame Tom Bombadil and and uh, for me never finishing the book to begin with <laughs> I I got about halfway through the Fellowship of the Ring and just lost steam because it just went on and on and uh, it became more of a cure for insomnia than than engaging and and so I think. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from, it's attributed to Ben Franklin, but I think others have said this, is, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's, it's very helpful when people can edit down to the real uh, crux of the storyline. I think that's what Peter Jackson did by cutting Tom Bombadil out, and I completely endorse that decision. Uh, <laughs> one of these days, maybe when I'm retired, I will go back and read the, the, the books in their entirety. But for right now, my position is cut out the, the fluff, and that's kind of the way I saw the Tom Bombadil character. That makes sense. I know it's a big point of contention with many readers, but Many agree with you where it is kind of maybe a bit too much. <laughs> so. I, absolutely. Absolutely. Cut to the story, right? We, we, life is too short to spend time on, on frivolous stuff, and that's kind of the way I see that character. Wonderful. We've drawn that line in the sand, so I'm glad we could start with this. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, the next question we had then is um, the Air Force has a lot of fantastic acronyms. Uh, TRL, which doesn't mean total request live with Carson Daly. It means technical readiness level. And programs like uh, Thor, Armor, Batman, it goes on and on. So do you have a favorite acronym or have you ever been part of a naming a project? Oh, my goodness. Um, coming up with a favorite acronym would be hard. We have some some folks who are very creative in coming up with acronyms. And I guess the one that, that, that comes to mind is SHIELD. And I, I, I don't know that I can even tell you what it stands for. It's basically the, the L in SHIELD stands for laser. It's a laser defense program that our directed energy folks are working on. But the acronym itself describes what it tries to do in very short, pithy statements. So those are the best acronyms, when you can convey the basic idea of what you're trying to achieve within, you know, within an acronym that actually spells something out. But as in the case of SHIELD, most people forget what the acronym actually stands for, but it conveys the idea that this is about defending aircraft with a laser system, and you know, that would be a revolutionary capability for the Air Force, you know, once we mature it and get it to that point. But that's one of the, you know, one of my favorite acronyms because it's a word, it's an English language word that we can actually understand and convey the meaning of what the project is about. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And Shield was just in the news too. Pretty big milestone. Absolutely, a very significant test of shooting down, you know, missiles in flight to demonstrate that we could actually do this. We could actually achieve the power levels, and and we understand the phenomenology. And the most important aspect of that is it anchors the modeling and simulation and analysis that we had done to convince ourselves that it's not just in the the laboratory at the sort of the benchtop level, but but when we actually take it out into the field in an operational environment, things behave and, and, and act exactly like we predicted. And so that's really the important part, but it's also quite impressive you know, what we were able to do with that capability. Uh, so that, that was a stepping stone to the, the next phase of this, of the, of the program, to put a laser system on an aircraft and be able to shoot down missiles in flight. What do you think, you, know, you get to talk about this amazing technology, what do you think the coolest part of your job is? I'm a technologist. I think the coolest part of this job is just getting to engage and understand all of the interesting technologies that are out there. Every time I get an opportunity to go out and interact with our smart scientists and researchers, I learn something. I learn something new about a technological area that is emerging with new opportunities. I'll mention the biology and the genetic editing kinds of things that in, in our understanding of bacteria and things like that. There's a great deal of investment in the commercial sector, but there's also defense applications that, that make a heck of a lot of sense in terms of the, and I'm not an expert in this field, so <laughs> I'm probably gonna not get much of this correct, but the whole notion that the gut biomes, the, the, the bacteria in our gut, can potentially influence not just our um, behavior, but our performance. And so the question is, is can we use that to ensure that our airmen are at peak performance when they need to be? And of course, we're not the only organization that would be interested in ensuring individuals that are at peak performance uh, at a given timing. I mean, the you know, professional athletes and everything else would be very interested in that. And in fact, there are, there's a number of partnerships that we have with research communities to get into that. But just from a human standpoint and a scientific standpoint, to contemplate how the bacteria in your stomach can have a you know, profound impact on your performance is pretty amazing. But there's, there's so many different technologies that, that we're working with. Materials, I'm, my background is a little bit in solid state physics and material systems. And so some of the things that we've done to advance the you know, state of material systems, uh, whether it's advanced metals or ceramics or, or semiconductors is really phenomenal. You know, one of the, the things that interests me Maybe because I, when I first came in the Air Force as a lieutenant, I was working on uh, molecular beam epitaxy, which is basically crystal growth. So we were just growing crystals and a whole variety of, uh, of systems. But at that time, this is in the early 1990s, 90, uh, 92, 93 kind of time period, and gallium nitride was the, the new area that, that, that we were spending a lot of time and energy working on. And I can't help but mention GPS. Uh, and, I, and part of that was because I had the distinct pleasure of being the director for GPS for a couple of years when I was in Los Angeles and got to launch, well, I was, you know, we launched five satellites while I was out there and I was kind of the spokesperson in a sense for this global utility. And when you think about, you know, GPS is another one of those world-changing 
technical capability. Yeah, I use it every day. Well, that's right. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Most people confuse their Garmin device or their smartphone with GPS, but that carries the map and everything else. But the, the service of broadcasting, you know, precise timing so that everybody can figure out where they are, whatever, is provided by the United States Air Force. Unfortunately, most people don't quite understand that or they don't get that and appreciate that. But the technologies that that came from also came uh, through the Department of Defense. You know, the Navy was involved, Air Force was clearly involved. Colonel Brad Parkinson, Colonel Dr. Brad Parkinson is uh, widely considered the father of GPS. And in fact, there's a film that documents uh, this. I think it's called The Lonely Halls on Netflix is available for Prime that you can go in and it sort of documents how that decision was made because there was a number of ways in which you could architect the position navigation and timing system. And there were, of course, adversaries, you know, who, who wanted to go down a different path. But, you know, this was in like the early 1970s. Fast forward to where we are today, one cannot imagine a world that is not supported by GPS. So much of what we do. While I was in um, as the director of GPS, I got to learn all about precision farming. I had no idea this existed. But it turns out that farmers are, to a large degree, not even driving their tractors anymore because they cannot drive them with the same precision that your, that, that a computer aided with GPS can drive them. So it's very interesting, and this is worldwide, that they can directly put down fertilizer within you know, a couple of centimeters accuracy and thereby save not just on fertilizer, but on the potential runoff and the impacts to the environment and everything else. That's so, crazy. So when you can drive a tractor or a combine or whatever, at that level of precision, use GPS and a technique called differential GPS, which sort of gives you that very, very high accuracy, it's phenomenal. And so it's revolutionized farming. And you know, who would have thought that, that the decisions that Colonel Brad Parkinson made in the Pentagon and the decision that, and the investments that we've made were, were going to enable all of that revolution. It's phenomenal. And you kind of touched on it, but what was it like being the director then of GPS, like knowing that this was really going to change the world? It was a crazy busy time um, and a lot of stress, but it was all very worthwhile because of the impact that it has um, globally. And the other exciting part about that job was it, it wasn't, it's not just the care and feeding of the current system. When you go out and use your GPS, you, you know, you're getting the civilian signal, which is, you know, highly accurate, getting better every year. But we're also rolling out new capabilities that at different frequencies that are going to allow people to get a much higher accuracy signal of GPS. What that will enable is hard to know. You know, one thing, for example, is uh, self-driving cars. Right? right now, most people's GPS tells them, okay, I'm on you know, such and such road. When you get an accuracy that is better than a one foot accuracy right, you know, on a continuous basis, that can tell you what lane you are in. And so where is this going to go? How is this going to play out? I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But that's part of the, the excitement is, is innovators around the country and around the globe who take some of these capabilities and these ideas and turn them into to the modern society that we have today.
Yeah, that's crazy. And you touched on it best saying how even with uh, building GPS, you weren't sure that or didn't know that the farmers could use it the way they did. So who knows who could be using it in just a few years. And exactly. New yeah. spun out ways. Exactly. I think this, the, the interesting thing, in fact, one of the programs that we spend a lot of time and effort on is the OCX program, which is the sort of the next generation operational ground segment for GPS to make sure that it is very, very cyber hardened and, and is uh, secure. Um, and the reason for that, there's a good reason for that. So much of what we take for granted in modern society is predicated on GPS. And I mean, for example, many of the banks and the security systems use a highly accurate time tagging system as part of their security, which is fundamentally relies on GPS. And so, uh, making sure that that is that we're not going to have some, you know, GPS hacked at, at the ground level that could potentially, you know, impact the entire constellation. That's that's critical. And in fact, that was you know one of the things that concerned me uh, was I was going to wake up one morning and find out that you know something had been hacked or that GPS was broadcasting a bad signal. Uh, interesting story. While I was there, the Russian GLONASS system was down for like you know, 12 hours or something. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Oh, so, wow. Glo- and what is that? So that's the Russia's version of GPS. Okay. It's called GLONASS. And it, in fact, it's in a very similar orbit, but they have not invested in keeping it, you know, updated and, and fully populated and everything else. What was interesting is that the system was down for about 12 hours. The, the funny thing about that was almost nobody noticed. Oh, wow. Because nobody uses yes. it. That's right? fair. If, if, you, if you cannot rely on a service like that, you're not gonna use it. In fact, I remember we had photos of Russian pilots who had Garmin units in their cockpit because it was a reliable service. That right? is wild. Which is, <laughs> which is a, 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 hurts your head a little bit, but, uh, but actually I think it's a testament to exactly what we attempted to do with GPS, is to ensure that you know, we provide this as a global utility to everybody. The interesting thing that well, I was concerned about potentially having GPS go down because it is a trust relationship. So many people rely on it. But in the case of GLONASS, when it went down, nobody was using it, so very few people noticed it. There was only some monitoring stations that noticed it. So now they're, you know, I don't know what they're going to be doing, but China's investing in a, in a, in a similar position navigation and timing system. Uh, called Beidou, and you know they're trying to populate it. But largely, most of the systems, most of the receivers will accept both Beidou and GPS and GLONASS and Galileo, which is the European version. So it's a very complicated uh, world that, that that we live in. But people have recognized how useful uh, this kind of a utility, this kind of uh, capability, can be, not just to the Defense Department but you know, to our entire society. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's, I was not aware of the full scopes. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I wasn't fully aware of it until I was in that position as well and, and got a, a better understanding of how, how impactful GPS is and the interesting dynamic. And you've had a, a really interesting career path from, from my understanding. It's not very traditional to be you know, an engineer and end up in the leadership role you're in and you have a PhD. Could you talk a little bit about about your path to becoming the AFRL commander? One never knows where their career is going to lead. I never expected to be the AFRL commander. Uh, I never really thought I was necessarily on a path to do that. Uh, but sometimes things align and you get opportunities that, that line up and here I am. 
so my career, my career, like everybody else, has a, there's a certain unique elements in terms of the types of experiences that you have. I think within the Air Force, I'm I'm unique because you know I, I haven't had a, a significant you know operational background. I've been in the acquisition side of the business, um, and specifically the technology side of the business. And and there just are not very many other general officers in the Air Force. Well, I guess I could maybe be more specific. I'm not aware of any other general <laughs> officer in the Air Force who has that same uh, sort of technological background and, and, and heavy emphasis on, on the laboratory and advancing technology, research development, science technology, those kinds of things. You know, going through the career, I never really expected it to play out this way. I think maybe the, the key element for me, the first part of my career was I was just interested in how everything worked. So even though I had done a undergraduate and master's in mechanical engineering at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and then at the University of New Mexico. Once I got active duty and was exposed to fascinating things like photovoltaic solar cells and in a, in a sense that's what inspired me to just want to understand how everything works. And the science discipline that helps you do that is physics and so that's what I went to study. I went back to graduate school to to study physics. I, I wanted to understand how lasers work and at the molecular level, at the, you know, at the lowest possible level to understand how, how those, what makes some of these things possible. I'll just say that why do I mention photovoltaic solar cells? Well, it's, it's almost magic. When you think a, 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 a photovoltaic solar cell is just a solid piece of, looks like glass or, you know, and how is it that you take this thing out in the sunlight and you hook up a couple of electrodes to it and you get electricity out. You get voltage and current and, and you, that can drive something. I mean, it's just remarkable that going directly from sunlight into uh, electricity. And so trying to understand all of the things that have to happen to make that possible is what sort of pushed me down a path to into solid state physics and understanding that and the interaction of light with solids and all of that. So really the first part of my career is just wanting to understand everything I could uh, about that. And then the next part of my career, I ended up in the, the big acquisition uh, business of the Air Force, uh, working satellite programs and, well, representing satellite programs at the Pentagon, working with Capitol Hill and briefing staffers and working with the program office and within OSD. And that was an, another epiphany sort of the second epiphany that's like, oh my gosh, this is a huge, huge number of stakeholders. The stakes are extremely high, billions of dollars that we're spending for these things that are gonna have a tr massive impact on our capability as a defense department. And so I got, I got pulled into the <laughs> very challenging program in the Pentagon, but that just exposed, you know, gave me some exposure to something that I didn't even know was happening in the world, you know, uh, the first part of my career, I'm in the labs, I'm focused on technologies, all that kind of stuff. Had no idea of the magnitude and what was going on. And so, so that opened another uh, door for me to kind of understand the, you know, big picture acquisition. And then I think maybe the, th the third epiphany was probably uh, at, I spent a year at National War College and, and just getting to see and that and, and the tour in Afghanistan. And you get a sense of this enormous national security enterprise and how 
challenging and complex and the professionalism of the people who are doing it, I just came away with a real appreciation for uh, the, this enterprise and, and how complicated it is. And there's a, a book, I think with Condoleezza Rice, I, I believe, wrote a book, Running the World, and you know, from the National Security Council enterprise. Or what, and, and so when you think about the, the role that the United States plays in that national security enterprise, it's pretty remarkable. It's, it's remarkable what all we do economically, diplomatically, in the intelligence community, the Defense Department. And, and so getting an appreciation for that sort of motivated me to, to say, hey, this is an opportunity to make a difference, hopefully a positive difference, you know, not just to the people around me, but really to the nation, the national security, and the globe. Because the other countries look to us for leadership. And they look to us as the professionals that make this possible. And as you went through this journey, um, being an engineer, having that background, did that really help uh, when speaking to people and becoming a leader later on to kind of translate those, the work you're doing from the labs to, let's say, people in Congress? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, um, I remember well uh, some of my colleagues sort of laughing at me because when, when I was dealing with the congressional st- uh, staffers, they'd ask a question, I th- well, we were doing laser comm and a variety of other things, and, and I would... <laughs> oftentimes go into sort of my physics 101 speech, which, you know, it talks about just the electromagnetic spectrum and, and the uh, complexities of its interaction with matter and the environment and, and why different bands, you know, behave differently and, and, and those kinds of things. And uh, so I guess in a sense, yes. It, it, and, and, and that may have been actually one of the advantages that I had is that I, I could come at things from a different perspective that's foundational, you know, has, is, is anchored in basic physics, right? And so, in a sense, you, you can't go too far wrong if you anchor yourself in what is known science and try and explain those things in simple, plain English terms. It's an effective approach to, to try and convince, you know, Congress or OSD or others as to why we ought to be doing the things that we're doing. Yeah, because I've heard there's difficulties in translating some research projects because some uh, people can kind of talk at a high level. So what you said there is perfect, saying it's good to be able to talk at a base enough level but still capture the essence. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, I, I actually think this is an area where engineers and scientists really fall short sometimes. Sometimes we falsely think that using big words and specific terms within their discipline will come across as, you know, as, oh, I look intelligent because I'm, I'm working in spectroscopy or I'm doing, you know, use terminology that, that your layman, your, your typical, you know, man or woman on the street, you know, may not be familiar with. I reject that. I, I think, that, in fact, I think quite the reverse is true. I think the far more effective and intelligent approach is to actually speak in plain English so that everybody can understand what some of these terms mean. So when you hide yourself in a shield of, of complicated mumbo-jumbo terminology, that doesn't, it doesn't help to actually convey and communicate. The whole idea of communicating is to you know, convey effectively ideas. And so uh, there's a real talent there. Some people are, are very natural and good at that. Some of us have to learn. I kind of feel like I'm one of those that, that had to learn through the various life experiences and because I grew up in a technical community, but then as I interacted, I remember at Air Command and Staff College in particular, I was surrounded by mostly folks from the operational community. 
and they were not going to have any of it. They're not going to, you know, tolerate me using mumbo jumbo techno speak, <laughs> right? So you have to learn and adapt. Hey, how can you communicate? And it's far better approach to, to do that. It's tough, but but that's the challenge that I think engineers, scientists, technologists have to embrace is to say, how can I communicate these things in plain, simple language? And speaking of communication, um, when you usually or when you speak to ROTC students um, who will go on to be uh, future warfighters and leaders, how do you explain what we do here at the labs uh, do for the United States? Very much like I just have been doing with you. Uh, I think you know. I think about my time in ROTC. I didn't know what I didn't know. I had no idea how broad our national security enterprise is and how many opportunities there are to support in various ways. Because it's, it's very much like kids in junior high or high school. If you ask them what they want to do, a huge disproportionate number will say, I want to be a teacher. And oh, YouTube stars now. Oh, well, maybe, maybe so. I, I guess I haven't been doing that uh, enough. Yeah, the two uh, avenues you can go down. Teachers, <laughs> the two avenues. teachers and YouTube teachers stars. Teachers or YouTube stars, okay. <laughs> Well, but you know, it's it's natural that they would respond that way because that's what they see and know and interact with, right? It's really important, and we have a number of you know inter internship programs and those kinds of things. It's important that that kids, that people have opportunities to go see and experience firsthand what it's like to interact in a different environment, and then all of a sudden their eyes are open. They're like, oh wow, didn't know this existed. Didn't know that didn't know what this looked like or felt like or this isn't bad, right? And so when you're an ROTC student, you know, most of those folks, they, they have not necessarily had a lot of exposure to these things. And so to the extent that it's possible, I hope to convey at least my experience, my perception, my, the epiphanies that I've gone through that say, hey, wow, this is it. There is a lot of stuff going on. There's a huge amount of stakeholders. The consequences are very high. And we need capable people to engage uh, in this stuff. So come on in, the water's fine, and we'll work it together. That's great, because a lot of people can be almost intimidated when it comes to like, oh, hey, you work with the Air Force and the government, what does that entail? And the way you explain that makes it sound uh, not only welcoming, but just a lot nicer than many people may think. That's great. I'm, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that concerns me from a sort of demographic standpoint is that there are not a whole, as, as many folks that have had military experience as we once had, you know, generations past, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when you think about coming out of World War II, everybody knew somebody who was uh, in the war, mm -hmm. right? Because there, we, we deployed millions, you know, quite literally. And, and so it was very common to have an understanding of what it meant to be in the Army and Navy and all those kind of things, and, and a part of this, in this organization. Now, we have a smaller percentage of the population who actually either serves in uniform or serves as, in the, uh, as a civil servant or has an, a touch point within the Defense Department. And so it becomes, you know, this is where conspiracy theories come about and whatever because it's opaque. People do not know what's behind the fence, right? They don't have any firsthand experience to understand that, oh, by the way, behind the fence are human beings also and they have they're, they're, they're frail and they have uh, emotions and shortfalls and, and ingenious ideas and ambitions and all of those things, right? And so I think it's a very, it's healthy when we can have more interaction and less opaque uh, relationship with the broader population. I think that's really, really important. And so I understand how it could be intimidating because you don't know, 
you know, people do not know. And for lots of good reasons. There's things that we need to keep, keep close hold. But guess what? It's human beings, you know, doing the best they can for national security enterprise. Sure. I mean, people might not even know you talk to people in personnel and they go to recruiting events. They may not know that you don't have to commission or enlist to be in the Air Force, to work for the Air absolutely. Force. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's lots of uh, avenues to work for the Air Force. In fact, in the Air Force Research Laboratory, most of the population, what is it, about 85% of the uh, government employees for Air Force Research Laboratory are civilians. They do not wear a uniform unless you count a coat and tie as a and dockers is a uniform. <laughs> Most of them are civilians, and and they don't you know have the same sort of, of expectations and constraints and deployments and all those kinds of things. So you're absolutely right that that there's a huge opportunity to serve it within this national security environment uh, that's that does not require putting on a uniform. And it takes all of us, right? It takes all of those those uh, the the talent and the different perspectives to make this happen. And that's a big thing, too, that many people don't know here at AFRL is how many partnerships we have. So can you kind of talk on uh, kind of like work we've done before with universities, DARPA, NASA, along those lines, kind of what we've done in the past? I oftentimes talk about the Air Force Research Laboratory as being a, a central hub within an ecosystem. This, this ecosystem is, is the partnerships and the, the other science and technology investors, the other research and development investors, the, the, the war fighters that, that we work with to help us define uh, requirements and what's needed, the academics, you know, clearly the, the academic, you know, our, our relationship with academia and universities is foundational to uh, not just bringing in the workforce, but also doing the science and technology advancement that we count on. And on the, on the cutting edge, much of the basic research of understanding what new phenomenologies we can leverage to create technologies comes from universities. Industry is clearly a partner. I often say at industry engagements that, you know, the Air Force, we don't make anything. We are not making F-35s. We are not making F-15s. We are not making satellites. Our industry partners make them. We help define and create and set the conditions so that we can make wonderful systems like GPS. But our industry partners at the end of the day are the folks that are gonna make those. So clearly we've got a partner and you know, tie with them. But you mentioned several other, what I'd call other government agencies, right? Mm -hmm. DARPA, National Science Foundation, uh, NSA, our partners in the Department of Energy, the National Labs, Los Alamos, Sandia, Livermore, Oak Ridge, many of those are also part of our science and technology ecosystem. And so, depending on the technology that we're engaged with, it's, it's in our interest as a nation to reach out to them and make sure that we're maybe competing, but maybe collaborating, maybe working together. Maybe what I, what I strive for is what we call interlocked partnerships, in which we have a shared destiny, or shared fate, right? Where I can rely on uh, some other organization to do some element of the research that needs to be done, and they're relying on us to do a piece of that, and then together we're successful. Because 
it's more efficient and effective if, if we can do that versus both of us doing the same thing and, and, and spending the resources uh, to do that. So there's a lot of examples of, of very successful partnerships. DARPA is one of our best partners uh, because they are an investor directly in advancing science and technology and capabilities. And so the hypersonics activities that we have with them, whether it's a, a scramjet engines or glide vehicles, uh, we're partnered with DARPA really in a 50-50 cost-sharing arrangement where, where we're footing half the bill and DARPA's footing half the bill and we're advancing the state of technology together. Uh, so that's a, that's a terrific partnership. I'd, I would also mention my, uh, the sister service laboratory. So uh, Rear Admiral Dave Hahn at the Office of Naval Research <coughs> is a terrific partner. He is my counterpart in the Navy. And uh, you know they may obviously make a lot of investments in science and technology, and so we're constantly looking for where can we leverage, where can we partner together and leverage investments uh, smartly for the defense of the nation. The Army, likewise, uh, General Cedric Wins at CCDC is a terrific partner in terms of trying to make sure that we're making smart investments, uh, whether it's in microelectronics and 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 leveraging what we're we're uh, doing together. And then I have to mention my Coast Guard uh, counterparts. Uh, the, the, the Coast Guard has a much smaller budget and number of resources and people, but they are very much engaged in one uh, particular area on the counter unmanned uh, vehicle system, or UAS, unmanned aerial systems uh, vehicle. And, and they're a great partner for us to help do some testing and, and deploy things with them. So I'm glad you touched on all those. Um, so you created LabSync. We kind of wanted to talk about what that entailed and how that works with the other defense research laboratories you just mentioned. So I have, across my career, I've been in the Air Force Research Laboratory or its predecessor organizations more than any of the prior commanders, just the, the way it worked out. So I've, I've sat in four of the different technical directorates. And throughout my career, even when I was outside the lab and kind of looking in and watching this, there's never been a, a significant linkage between what we're doing in the Air Force Research Laboratory and what the Navy Research Laboratory, Navy is doing in Army. And so early on in my tenure in this job, I said, you know what, I want to reach out to my counterparts and see if we can change that dynamic. And so that's exactly what we did. So uh, we, I reached out to uh, both Army and Navy, and I asked the, you know, I, I don't want to make this an Air Force thing, so the Army was first to host. So General Wins uh, hosted it uh, up at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, and it was, <laughs> it was very interesting because uh, General Wins got up and, and he sort of briefed us, told us what some of his key challenges are. And I looked over at uh, Rear Admiral Dave Hahn and we almost, we, we kind of chuckled because it's like, okay, I could brief exactly the same things. Those are the, exactly the same challenges and issues that I'm dealing with. And uh, Rear Admiral Hahn, you know, is of the same mind. So clearly we had a lot in common. And so it made all the sense in the world to say, okay, we need to share lessons learned and best practices and collaborate as smartly as possible. And so we found some areas in which it makes sense for us to collaborate. One of the things that we're doing is addressing the uh, enterprise business system. So how the sort of the IT systems and how we do our processes behind the scenes within the lab, we had to update it. We, we were 
we were working in last century's technology and it was slow and burdensome and not. And so we said, look, this is, we've already started this and both the Army and the Navy said, we're in. We love it, we wanna be part of it, we're in. And so that started a conversation to help do that. And, and these things are, take time, they're tough, uh, but that's the path that we're on. And so, uh, so that's one example, but there's a number of other technical areas that we're also uh, working together and trying to drive to make sure that, that we can create interlocked partnerships across the services. If we could ask you one last question. Of course. What are you most excited about coming in the future out of the Air Force Research Laboratory? The problem is there's not just one thing. Uh, I could list, you know, easily a couple of dozen things that are exciting and potentially revolutionary. Uh, one of the things that was, that's been in the press quite a bit is the Valkyrie, the low-cost attributable vehicle. One of the things that our, our folks over in the Aerospace Systems Directorate have been uh, working for some years is this notion of completely changing the business model to, to say, can we build aerial vehicles at a much, much reduced cost such that we could treat them as a tritable? The notion of an attributable vehicle uh, doesn't mean it's a throwaway type system, but what it means is if we lose it or that it's not you know, a significant loss. The cost point is not so significant that we're gonna try and nurse these things to last for 20 or 30 years. And, and we're not gonna design them uh, because a lot of times the, the cost to design in these very high reliability vehicles builds out ex potentially exquisite systems but at a very high price. And so we're trying to change the cost dynamic uh, by building these systems. They've done a terrific job of getting industry, challenging industry, to relook at that and have, have flown the Valkyrie and at a price point that is, you know, significantly less than what you would normally uh, expect. That's great. Uh, and, so, and so that's one. I can't, can't hardly say enough about that some of the science and technology and innovative ideas that we're doing to shape space. I would argue that, that much of the changing dynamics within DOD space have come from the thinkers at the Space Vehicles Directorate. The example I would highlight is Eagle that was launched a little over a year ago and has brought, sometimes we call it a truck to space, right? A, by exploiting the ESPA ring, which is, is something that you know normally goes between the satellite and the and the rocket body itself, and using that as a flyaway spacecraft and doing multiple experiments around this thing, that's completely changed the dynamic for, for access to space. And there's a number of capabilities that, that they're bringing. Uh, we have another uh, satellite going up later, later this month, the DSX satellite, uh, that is based on the same basic idea of having a, an ESPA ring that's gonna fly away. Hugely exciting experiment that, that I probably don't have time to talk about but a scientific experiment to really interact with the radiation belts uh, in a way that we've never done before. I, we mentioned SHIELD. <coughs> SHIELD is a phenomenal capability to get a, a laser on an aircraft that can make a difference to defend itself. It's, it's a huge step forward uh, with a solid state laser. We've, we've put lasers on aircraft, but the, tech, the type of technology, the approach that you take matters. The airborne laser was a phenomenal research and development effort. 
uh, shot down uh, a missile, but it was a chemical factory on a 747, and that just is not particularly practical. And so this is really taking a different approach to it with a solid-state laser. Let me mention that the, uh, the Blue 111 is a great example of something from the weapons community in which the, the team down at Eglin did a phenomenal job. Dr. Brad Martin and uh, Dr. Rachel Abrams are now sitting in the program office and making that happen. And they, they in a sense, competed with industry and, and won. And the, the program office is, is uh, uh, down a path with the design that, that they came up with to, to basically build a, a penetrating uh, weapon system, low cost, built on a, a steel that was developed within Air Force Research Laboratory uh, Rachel Abrams was almost single-handedly uh, developed this, what, what we call AF-96, which is a type of steel that it is the core of uh, this, this next-generation weapon system. It's phenomenal. You know, it's a, in terms of designing, you know, we designed 90% of this thing. We've done a sled test, went from design to production in eight months. And, and so that's a particularly exciting kind of thing that they accomplished. The, the, the 7-11th Human Performance Wing it just has some phenomenal researchers in. We talked a little bit about some of the, the human performance and, and the, the gut bacteria and understanding that, but you know, that's just one small piece of it. The other piece I would mention that a lot of people don't know we do within Air Force Research Laboratory is the, the USAF-SAM mission. The, the School of Aerospace Medicine actually trains up the, the docs and the medical technicians to be able to deploy and take care of patients coming back, you know, in flight from you know on C-17s, uh, coming out of theater, and and all of the, the very Air Force unique battlefield kinds of medicine that we expect from our uh, active duty docs. Uh, one other uh, element of that is well, what they call C stars, and I can't remember the acronym, but it's it's effectively keeping our medical docs up to snuff and, and training, putting them in, in, in an environment in which they really get practiced in emergency medicine uh, with gunshot wounds and those kinds of things. So we have a C-STARS in Baltimore, for, for example, where, as they sometimes say, we have an active knife and gun club uh, so that the, our medical folks can actually get experience with treating those kinds of wounds and those kinds of patients. And so uh, we've got it there in Cincinnati and St. Louis, got a, a footprint out in Las Vegas so that, that we can train and make sure that our medical folks are ready to go. And that has been an extremely successful program and so much so that it's not just for the Air Force, the other services are reaching out to us to, to leverage that training, uh, other services and agencies because it's been so successful. So, you know, there's lot, just a lot of things that we're, we're doing that I'm particularly proud of. It's hard to get uh, drilled down to one, and I've oh. just touched the, brushed the surface. I, yeah, it's a I huge, huge mission, and hopefully other, other guests in our podcast that can do deep dives into some Absolutely. of your, your favorite uh, technology areas. Absolutely. But yeah. Thank you so much for your time. This has yeah, been really a appreciate it. Well, great no, Hey, I, I really appreciate uh, what you're doing to help us get out and tell the story of what we do in the Air Force Research Laboratory and the important role that technology plays for our national security enterprise. As I, and I have to end, if, if you will allow me, with my, the, the quote that really has characterized my career 
and sort of undergirds what we do and why we do it. And that was from Hap Arnold, uh, who said, the, the first essential of air power is preeminence in research. And that is as true today as it was when he first said that. It's absolutely essential that we stay on the cutting edge of technology so that we can be preeminent in, in the aerospace and cyberspace. Great quote. Thank you. Yeah, that's perfect. And to keep up to date with future and past podcasts and to check us out on social media, make sure to see us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And make sure to stay curious. Logging off. <laughs>